Hi, I'm Anna Soper, and this is Teen People. This podcast catches up with people who appeared in Teen People magazine as young adults. Today, I talk with Dr. Joe Normandon, who was in Teen People magazine in 1999. Joe and his then-partner were featured in an article called Happy Together, which profiled young lesbian and gay couples. Today, Joe's the director of undergraduate studies in the Neuroscience Institute at Georgia State University. I spoke with him over two interviews during the early weeks of the coronavirus pandemic and in the wake of intense protests against police violence in America. I was wearing a Star Wars t-shirt for our first interview, so we talked about Star Wars, but we also discussed everything from Anne of Green Gables to politics and youth activism. Hi there. Nice to see you, Joe. Your apartment looks very fun. Yeah, it's a cool place. Um, yeah. It's uh, basically, uh, I live in an old cotton mill building. Wow. They made feed bags for horses, I guess. And uh, uh, so this building was um, where they did a lot of the sewing. It's got like concrete floors and lots of cool stuff going on. But it's just been, it's been weird living here. We have random like run-ins with, with stars. Kate Blanchett was like in my elevator she was so striking. I didn't recognize her, but I was still struck by her, which is like really weird, right? Like, wow, like this person is like magnificent. It was just like the weirdest thing. Like we're coming down from the roof. She's super tall and she was wearing this like outfit that was like so expensive looking. Uh, and uh, she's like, oh, what's on the roof? And I started talking to her about what's on the roof and then like a great skyline view, blah, blah, blah. And, and then we kept stopping on different levels. And she's like, I guess I'm running the elevator. You know, it was just like funny. And then we got off and my boyfriend is like, was that the elf from Lord of the Rings? And I'm like, oh my God, it was. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what brought you to Atlanta? I moved down here for uh, grad school, stayed until 2010 when I uh, finished my PhD work. Then I moved to Amsterdam for a year for a postdoc, which was an amazing experience culturally and personally, but not professionally. Less than a year later, I was already on my way back to the US. Uh, so I stayed with my mom in Massachusetts for a year, and then I got a teaching job here at Georgia State University, and that's where I've been since 2012. At my university, what they've done is um, put all of our summer classes online mm -hmm. and basically now made part of our job being online instructors, which most mm -hmm. of us have no experience with. We have something called the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Georgia State, which is a Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. It supports faculty, uh, both in the technology side and the pedagogical side of, of how to be great teachers. Um, and they have courses where you learn to teach online. So we sort of did like a crash course in that just to meet some minimum standards of getting our our spring courses shifted to remote learning. I don't know what's happening in the fall yet. The university is still looking at all of the different options. So it's been very interesting to completely shift my job very, very quickly in the way that I approach it. I've largely been successful at it. The student feedback has been good, um, but it's not been easy and it's a lot, there's a lot of anxiety about it. How are you doing personally with the lockdown? I don't know. The past couple of weeks has been more difficult for me because um, it feels like work-wise, a lot was like added on um, that was, it was just, you know, things changed fast and 
just it, it just felt it was a lot of anxiety and that's and, and so right now usually between semesters I'd be taking a break and only kind of dealing with like major issues that cropped up but I'm having to like continue working quite a bit uh, my boyfriend um, is sort of marginally employed right now um, and he uh, he's quite a bit younger than me he's 20 five and recently finished a degree in film and media. So he was just starting to look for jobs when this all happened. And, um, you know, nothing's really going on there. Yeah. Uh, so he's been working really hard to find something and had even thought to start applying to just whatever he could do just to make some money. And then coronavirus happened. So like yeah. those kinds of jobs in the service industry just like disappeared you know, I feel a lot of responsibility for him. My mom is 79. I feel a role, and she's in Massachusetts. So I feel a lot of responsibility there. I've been ordering food for her, helping her navigate some technology, talking with her every day at her insistence to make sure that I'm okay. Uh, and all of that has made me feel quite anxious. So it's been quite a tumultuous time in the States in the last few weeks. How is that playing out where you are in Atlanta? As you know, here in the U.S., things are really, really awful. Um, if you're any kind of like kind, thoughtful, considerate person, then um, it just feels like you're in a post-apocalyptic world here. And in particular, where I live here in um, Georgia, um, you know, it's the same as our federal government. They just do not fucking care about people. It just feels like um, we're being left to die you know, and, and it's just, it's disgusting. Uh, our mayor is great. I think she's really risen to, uh, you know, she's the kind of leader you want. I mean, she's risen to this challenge. She's been great the whole way. Uh, but, um, no one else in our state really has certainly our federal government has failed us. And then of course, black people keep dying, um, at the hands of police and, there's been a lot of unrest in Atlanta, which I am fully supporting. Um, our governor is now using the National Guard to um, um, protect like state sites like the state capitol and his mansion. That's actually so on brand for your country. You know, the idea of a revolution in the streets, but also a really robust militia and we're seeing that with these federal troops yeah it's interesting right so um i i don't know the u.s history is comp more complicated than i was taught in 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 school and what's interesting is that i think that both the left and the right see themselves in the eyes of the original revolutionaries and if so if both of those sides see themselves like that then, um, it, I mean, it, it really can't, both can't be really true. Um, and so you have to look at sort of the core values that are, were rep represented. And, uh, you know, I would say perhaps that they're more left-leaning than, than right-leaning. I mean, the, the hypocrisy of it too is astounding because the Republican ethos is a limited government, local control, yes. right? And so what do we see happening right now? Federal overreach. And in my state, the governor mandating that individual cities can't have a, a mask mandate. Yeah. That's local control. 
recognizing what the citizens want. And certainly Atlanta wants masks. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a horrible time in our country, really. Um, there's never been anything like this in my lifetime, of course. But uh, it scares me for the future. Like, I'm just not sure our political system can recover from this. Mm. Where are you finding comfort right now? Uh, we play video games, like, incessantly. Um, we are huge World of Warcraft fans, but are taking a break from that in between expansions. And we've been playing a free game called Elder Scrolls Online, uh, which is uh, been fun. And we play a game called Overwatch as well that's a, a team-based first-person shooter that we like to play together. So uh, that and binging things on Netflix and Hulu, um, uh, just what are you uh, watching? taking some... Uh, let's see, on... Hulu, I just watched uh, The Great, about Catherine the Great. Um, it's a comedic um, drama, and it was excellent. And then uh, we are keeping up with RuPaul's Drag Race, of course. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Anne of Green Gables, and I'm currently reading the entire series because I needed something that was not evil. Here in Atlanta, we have a, uh, a con called Dragon Con. It's a big sci-fi, you know, fantasy comic books, blah, 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 convention. It's one of the biggest in the world. And it is a huge deal in Atlanta. And last year they had a fucking Anne of Green Gables panel with Megan Fallows. And I, I dragged my boyfriend there. So he's just like, I don't know what the fuck this is. And he's like on like Snapchat and Instagram the whole time. And we were like one of three men in the room. Everybody was just flipping out. Like every woman was going up to the mic, asking these really great questions, talking about the influence of Anne of Green Gables and of particular like that series on TV. And like, I wanted to go up and say something, but I was just like, I just can't. Like all these women like need to be able to do this. Like they don't need a man to come in here and say anything, you know? <laughs> But in my heart, I was like, we're all kindred spirits. What's your favorite Star Wars movie? Uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Absolutely. Gosh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was. It was. What did you think of the most recent Star Wars films, that, that trilogy? Um, there were some missteps, I think. The episode um, eight was the most disappointing. I watched it in the theater and I was kind of like entertained, but like, uh, like there wasn't much to it. Um, and I hated like what they did with Ray in that. It just felt so boring. Um, and then I watched it on a plane. Uh, uh, and I, after I watched it, I'm like, yeah, I never need to watch that again. Like, <laughs> and I usually don't say that about Star Wars. I mean, I've even watched Phantom Menace a couple of times. Um, did you see the most recent, like the last one, episode nine? Yeah, and and I was entertained. I thought it was great. I loved the ending where she takes the Skywalker name. I think that was a great thing to do. Um, but I also felt like they did not flesh her character out enough. And we never truly understand her motivations in any of this, except she wanted to get off Jakku and have adventure, right? But, you know, what was her motivation to actually be a hero and not a villain? Like, I never really saw that, like what was her life like on Jakku that led her to that, um, to going in that direction? I don't know why they didn't, I don't explore that more. I feel like it would have been really cool. Well, they ran out of time. I mean, I felt like because episode eight was so long, 
it's almost like Ryan Johnson painted J.J. Abrams into a corner for the last yeah. film. There wasn't enough time to let things unfold. Yeah. Um, because of how because of how episode eight was paced. Yeah, and and also just the content of episode eight, like it didn't move things yeah. forward as much. It was almost like a a moment. Yeah, I just didn't like that in episode eight, the entire film was basically the rebel fleet was running out of gas for two and a half hours. Yeah, and it's it a, took them it's that a dumb thing. Exactly, it took them that yeah. length of time to get to the final decisive battle. I just feel like it lacked a lot of depth. It's it's a Star Wars movie, so I don't know. Looking back, like, was there ever depth? I don't know. Um, I feel like there is, though. I feel like there is more depth. There is also a sense of magic. And mm-hmm. so the one Star Wars film that I have not seen is the Han Solo film, because for mm-hmm. me, Harrison Ford is Han Solo. I don't yeah. want anybody else. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure it was a fine film, but like... I wouldn't want to see it and then have that magic kind of shift for me. Yeah. Um, Rogue One, I thought, was very strong. <gasps> so good. Out it of was, all the new movies, that was absolutely the best. That's actually yeah. the second best Star Wars movie. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it has emotional depth. You know, the way they handled each character's death was so beautiful. Yep. And I loved the way that Jin and Cassian died together. Yep. It was yep. romantic, but also completely... Like they were friends, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, a they romance. weren't going to, they weren't going to kiss because like they didn't have that depth yet, but you could tell the potential was there and they both knew it. And they both knew it. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting that they made a decision to have Ray and Ben Solo kiss at the end of episode nine. Yeah. It's just cliche, you know, <laughs> I don't, it's just like, really, does a woman need to do that? Like, oh, okay. So I guess the man is saving her, even though she's a fucking badass Jedi. Right. Whatever. Getting back to your career. A few years ago, you taught a seminar called Nature's Chastity Belt. Um, The subtitle is Anatomy and Physiology of the Nucleus Paragigantocellularis. While I was a graduate student, they had a seminar series where we would uh, present our work to undergrads as a way of practicing giving a talk and the undergrads practicing listening to those. Um, so my work sort of focused on this part of the brain in rats um, and uh, how it functioned in both male and female rats, some of the neurochemistry and some of the anatomy, the neuroanatomy as well. Well, I was thinking about, um, you know, the title is very fun. It gives the impression of of somebody who is very interested in science communication. And I was wondering, how do you think scientists can communicate effectively at this time? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing um, that a scientist can do is always think about explaining their work um, in the simplest terms. Um, I really don't like when... um, a scientist will sort of say, oh, I can't explain that. It's too complicated. I feel like all the work that I've ever done, I can explain to anybody with different levels of scientific knowledge. 
Um, and you just need to understand your audience a little bit and, and adjust from there. Maybe you teach them a few basics along the way, um, but that's also not very difficult if you just um, reduce things to their, to their essence in an understandable way. Uh, and I think right now, largely, if, if you're looking for information, that is happening right now. You know, there's excellent um, information out there about coronavirus and um, uh, or the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, the disease that it causes. There's great information out there um, from scientists keeping things, um, you know, teaching things at different levels. The problem is that um, what we have is a population, uh, certainly in the United States, but, but really in, in all of the West, where people are not necessarily used to exercising critical thinking or understanding how to find good information and tell good information from bad information. That's where um, in every class we teach, we have to be helping students learn how to do that. Right. Yeah. How, how do you do that in your classes? Yeah. So I teach a course called Introduction to Neuroscience, which at my university is what we call a core curriculum course, meaning that anybody at the university could take this course as part of their science requirement, right? And so um, it has no prerequisites. You just come because you're interested in neuroscience and you've looked me up on Rate My Professor and apparently, you know, the course is easy and I'm amazing, great. Uh, so um, what I do in this course is, of course, teach some fundamentals about how the nervous system works but uh, we take periodic breaks throughout the semester and do something that I call the popular media discussions. And so I've uh, curated a few popular media articles or uh, media pieces, videos, audio, that students will um, uh, read, watch, listen to. Then in class, we have a discussion. It's guided where I have some questions that students either in small groups discuss and then we come together as a class or depending on the, uh, you know, the pace of the class, it might be a whole class discussion. Um, and we explore um, the good stuff in these articles, and as I say in class, in the bullshit, right? And how do you tell the difference? Well, how you tell the difference is based on what you've learned in class. So if you read something in this article, and it tends to contradict something we've learned in class, then which is correct? How do we know that? We talk a little bit about the idea of uh, confirmation bias um, and uh, your expectations about um, a particular subject, uh, you know, uh, meaning that you will interpret and uh, understand data with that bias and ignore other things that contradict. Um, we talk about reverse inference where you begin with an idea and you look for evidence of that. And uh, that's not the way the scientific method is supposed to work. And we talk about the idea of an N of one, one subject in a group is not going to represent an entire population of, for example, geniuses. And what is genius to begin with? We then talk about um, cochlear implants, which we could consider a brain machine interface uh, that allows people who are unable to hear, to hear sounds. Um, so it's great to think about that at the mechanistic level. How can we use technology in this way, but then the question becomes, should we, right? Is there something to be fixed? Is deafness a trait or is it a disability? 
what is a disability? And so we explore that from different perspectives with popular media. Mm. And then lastly, we talk about the science of sexual orientation. And we watch a pretty old video now from a, a news magazine on TV. It goes over some uh, research. And then they also listen to a podcast that I was in through Story Collider, which has an arc of me um, dealing with my sexuality as a young age by um, uh, nerding it out and trying to learn some neuroscience. And then ultimately leading to being a neuroscientist who studies sex, who then, and I then don't even care now what the origin of sexual orientation is. It made me comfortable in the past to think that, you know, I was born that way. And, and that's probably true, but I don't really care about that. What I care about is like, you know, are gay people not killing themselves, right? Um, are gay people being supported by their societies and cultures in a way that doesn't uh, hamper their lives, right? So that they can live their lives. It's a weird arc to that story where I was driven to sort of solve this mystery in a way. Yeah. Uh, but now it doesn't really matter to me much. I read the transcript for that podcast mm -hmm. and there were some things that really struck me. Um, as a librarian, I found it interesting, but also discouraging that you were approaching your search for information with fear and that you went to another library two towns away so no one would know who you are. And you came up with a backup default, you know, search topic in case mm -hmm. you were found, you know, in the sexuality section. You know, you carried that fear with you into the stacks. And I think anyone in my profession would hope that a young person who's seeking answers to a tough question would find the library as a safe haven mm -hmm. and would find library workers as collaborators. Yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly think the former was true for me, even though I approached it with a lot of fear. Um, that fear wasn't the library itself. Um, it was a comfortable place for me. As like a nerdy kid, the library was like a great place for me. But it, I never would have asked a librarian about these things. Uh, but I, I don't think that was so much the library and the way it works back, especially back then, so much as just a reflection of our culture, you know? Mm. Why wouldn't you have asked a staff person for, for information or help? I mean, I just would have imagined, I wouldn't have been comfortable them thinking that I was gay. So not that they even might judge me for it, but just that simple knowledge. I wasn't prepared to even sort of say that to myself, you know? Yeah. So you weren't out yet? Not at all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then later on, it didn't matter to me. I think I probably did ask librarians for help on various topics related to sexuality much later on. And, you know, obviously, given your, your research, you would have given yourself a, a really strong justification for asking a librarian for information on sexuality because... Oh, yeah, certainly by, by the time of, like, college and grad school, that wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah. yeah. Do you think your teenage self would have felt more supported in today's information context? Uh, would you have even gone to a library today if you were trying to find supportive information? I, I doubt it. I mean, I think that the way we find information is so different now. Um, and I think it would have been me watching a lot of YouTube videos of very happy gay people, uh, maybe around my own age, at, you know, a young gay person. I think there's a lot out there um, that 
can make you just feel comfortable with yourself. I think what's missing though is a sense of community because the internet sort of dilutes that to some degree. Um, so yes, all that is out there, but these people are not people you interact with it, you know, interpersonally, right. In your vicinity, like in your local area. So, you know, a big part of what, um, helped me when I was young is that I found uh, an organization called Bagley, the Boston Alliance of Gay and Lesbian Youth, uh, which still exists and it's still, you know, helping students in the Boston metro area. I went to those meetings, their social meetings as a way of meeting other gay and lesbian youth and having a community, being able to, it made me feel comfortable with myself. I got a lot of friends. I started dating and I became a leader. I helped to run the organization. They gave me other opportunities to tell stories about what it was like to be a gay person all throughout the New England area. Um, I got trained on how to do public speaking and then just tell my story. I read that um, for a time you were the only member of the Gay Straight Alliance in your school. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, at times it was like that. So it was an interesting, uh, so the, it was called Project Awareness, the, and it was a gay straight, they wouldn't call it like anything gay. <laughs> like, so it was started by a group of women uh, students at the, in my high school that were, I was friendly with, but not really close with. I think they had uh, they were all sort of exploring their own sexuality, sort of like a bit woke and had some gay male friends. And it was easier for them to sort of create this group than it was um, because none of them were necessarily gay themselves than it was for us gay people to do that, none of whom were out. Uh, the first person to like ever come out at Methuen High School was one year before me. And that was sort of just always whispered about and, and all that. I, I can't remember his name at the moment, uh, but um, the group was created once I came out and was more vocal about it um, and wanted to actually do things that were more present and obviously having people actually think about the word gay and what that meant. A lot of people started drifting away from the group. I think the heat of that was very alarming to them all the people who originally formed the group just completely dissipated. And those and were was, the straight people, the allies. Yeah. I mean, they were the allies and, but I'm not really sure, like maybe some of them were queer, but I wasn't really close with them. So, but as soon as I came into the scene, like I wanted to have like a school assembly on sexuality and it was like, poof, the group disappeared, but we still had the fucking assembly. Uh, so, uh, and then, you know, there was um, another student, Marissa, in my grade, who was out um, like me and she helped, but she dropped out of school, you know? Um, and a largely a big part of that was the way she was bullied and the way people treated her. Um, and then there was another uh, girl, Meg, who would come to the meetings, hardly ever spoke, sweet as can be, helped behind the scenes, but would get scared and like not come for a while and not participate and then come back. She's a teacher now, completely out, not as shy. I've not seen her in years, but we've You're spoken still in a little touch? bit. Uh, not really, but we've spoke some years ago on Facebook and, and she's just like, yeah, it's totally different now. And hmm. so glad we had that and everything. But even in Massachusetts, so in Massachusetts, it, it really was sort of the best 
place to be a young gay person of my generation because there were laws that protected us in schools. There was a, um, a youth pride march, you know, that, that I helped organize when I was, you know, the first, the first ever we did, you know, um, I, I, I helped with that. I, there were, there was just a lot of great things that, that the, the Bagley organization and all its uh, sister organizations throughout the state and in, in New Hampshire as well, like all kind of created this moment for young gay people at that time. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of the people that I knew were just afraid to come out to their parents and their friends and family, and they led double lives. And um, I always let my intellect kind of insulate me from, from, um, people, I always relied on my intellect to like bolster my own personal defenses. Um, I knew that I could leverage my intellect into a strength to help um, other people as well. And so, a lot of what motivated me back then, and largely does now, is that I don't want people to experience the things that I experienced in myself. And if somebody is, you know, not able to um, be out, well, then I will help, I will make a school assembly happen so that they know that they're okay, right? Mm -hmm. Even if that was really more for a few people here and there to feel better about themselves and not be bullied, if mm -hmm. I got bullied in the process as a result, I could handle that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there were things that happened in high school after I came out. There's like a lot of whispering behind my back, walking down the hall. People are always like looking at me and turning away and whispering or being called faggot in the hallway by people that I'd grown up with and done school projects with for years. And like all of a sudden they hated me. Um, it was weird. And then there were other beautiful moments. Um, I remember once in gym class, uh, there was this like real sort of typical jock guy that had always... Um, bullied me in a very strange way. Like he just, I was short and skinny. And when we would cross each other in the hallway, he would divert to make sure he would like r physically run into me and having a lot of pride, I would never get out of the way. So I just fucking fly. Cause like he was bigger than me. So I'd always get knocked over somehow into the lockers, but I would never let my pride wouldn't let me like step out of his way. Um, then after I came out, we were in a gym class together. We did like a team building exercise. I was the braids. He was the brawn. We did this whole thing where we had to get over a, um, it was like reverse limbo. It was like the stick that kept getting higher as each person went over it. So we devised a plan, talked with everybody who was comfortable with it, getting over the different heights. And so people who really felt like they couldn't jump, they went first. And then when it got to the end, he was like, I can jump this no matter what. And, but I was like organizing everything and they got to a height where I couldn't jump over. So I'm like, I don't know what to do now because I wasn't paying attention. Now I can't get over it. He was like, we're good. And he like throws me over <laughs> and then he jumped over. And afterwards <laughs> we were sitting next to each other and he's like, it was really cool when you came out. That was really brave of you. So wow. I, it was, yeah, I was really moving. Um, and so that team building exercise actually did exactly what it was supposed to do. Um, and bringing us all together, but it also created this time, this like moment where he felt he could be vulnerable about 
him having some respect for me in a way that I never would have expected. Let's talk about teen people. Sure. <laughs> you were 21 when you were in teen people. What advice mm-hmm. would you give to your 21-year-old self today? Oh, Jesus. Um, well, I mean, I think one thing that's really important is to always um, be authentic and, and vulnerable in the way that you approach people. I think that I'm able to do that more now than I was in the past. I think, a, you know, one thing that I like to say to students is that that strength is not sort of just when you have a challenge, just kind of like bucking up and, and getting through it, you know, tolerating whatever pain there is. Um, strength in reality is when you face a challenge, reaching out to other people for help, because if it's something that you don't have the resources to do yourself, you say to another person, Hey, can you help me meet this challenge? Nine times out of 10, that person wants to help you. That's especially true in a classroom setting with your instructors and fellow students. And in my experience, largely that's, that's the way life works, both at a personal and professional level. Um, I think there's just been very few times where I've reached out to people for help and, and not, not uh, you know, shown that vulnerability as a strength to reach out to someone. So I think in the past, I wasn't really like that. I think that I was more like, I need to just get through things. And, you know, my undergraduate experience is, is filled with that because um, I really struggled as an undergrad. I didn't really have good study skills. I kind of just got through high school as a smarty pants, not really studying very much. So college was a whole other ball game. Did not know how difficult it would be. And I crashed and burned pretty quickly as a result and never really reached out to other people. Um, and that held me back a lot. Um, so I, I like to think that I do that more now, that I can be vulnerable, that I can be authentic in that way more than I was before. I don't know if I grew uh, out of a lot of the things that I think of in myself as not the best stuff uh, in the way I approach others in life. But I, I hope I have a little bit. And I think part of that is is trying to be a bit more uh, vulnerable and, and self-aware. It sounds like you were describing the dissatisfaction of your postdoctoral time in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like a part of your growing was realizing when things are not working, you've learned to prioritize what makes you feel happy in your professional life. Certainly I've done that. Um, I think that when you're younger and just starting out, there's so much opportunity. You may not even really know what makes you happy yet. I certainly know that now. So I don't see that as something I would necessarily have to tell myself back then. I might say you will be happy, right? It's not going to be easy. You'll figure it out. You know, another thing that, that I would say too is that and this is still true today, I put a lot of pressure on myself to always be the best that I can. I think a lot of people around me, you know, I have have high expectations for myself, but I also have high expectations for the people around me. And that is really hard for the people around me, that that my expectations are are always to be self-reflective and um, vulnerable and honest and make changes so that you can uh, be a better person. I, I like to think that I've done that both personally and professionally throughout my life and trying to be introspective. 
But sort of requiring that of myself and requiring that of other people is a bit of fail is a bit of a failing of my personality, and it comes off as very judgmental to others. When in a way, I just want those people to be as happy as they can be. It's a, and, and for me to be as happy as I can be, and I see the, the the route to that in a way, sort of being perfect, and that that's that just seems absurd when you say it. Um, I'm like the Borg from Star Trek that they're seeking perfection, uh, <laughs> but they they destroy people along the way. Well, fuck, put that in the podcast. <laughs> On the positive, you're a teacher, which means you're an influencer, and mm-hmm. so you have a platform to help people grow into their best selves through education. Yeah. It's actually great for, to be a teacher <laughs> and have this because it, it, um, you know, my job is to offer these different perspectives to students. I'm in a professional situation where I can't sort of, I can't eschew other people's ideas. I have to sort of let people explore those. Unlike in an interpersonal relationship where I can just roll my eyes Right. I'm not going to do that to to a student. Um, yes. Because of the professional perspective that I have and, and other values that take precedent precedence. Yes. Uh, but then it becomes like this weird thing in myself is like, well, why wouldn't you do that in an interpersonal relationship? Right. Wouldn't that be caring to the other person to perhaps not rule your eyes or talk to them in a condescending manner? You know, yes. I well, mean, it, the thing about being a student is the students paying to be there. Yeah. Um, so they've made an investment. So it's probably smart of you not to roll your eyes at your students. Right. But, you know, sometimes I, you know, I am, you know, quite direct with students. Like, and that's I'll, fair. I'll, yeah. I'll say things. I don't think I'll say things like I don't think that quite makes sense. Let's explore this logically. As soon as I say it doesn't make sense, though, there it, it it's it becomes at times for certain students adversarial. Okay. Right. Because what they hear is I'm an idiot. Right. But what I'm saying is that I don't think you've fully thought this through with your innate intelligence. Right. Right. And so I'm trying to get them along that road, but I don't have time to, to say to a student, I really care about your intellect and your feelings at the same time. And I love you, but the answer you gave me was incorrect. And now it's time for us to explore how you got to that answer. I mean, if I had to say that every time, um, we'd never finish a class. You know, to some degree, the students have to put up with some of that for me, but I try to, as best I can, be respectful but direct um, and keep showing in other ways that this is all coming from my heart. That actually sounds fine. That sounds valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not worked so, that the, these same strategies don't work so well in interpersonal relationships. Do you have the copy of Teen People that you were in? I do. I grabbed it this morning. Yeah, my boyfriend's actually never seen it. How did you get connected with Teen People? Uh, So at the time, I was actually, I was in college, um, and I was um, doing work study at Bagley, the Boston Alliance of Gay and Lesbian Youth. So I wasn't really going to their meetings anymore as like a young gay person. I sort of had developed my own friends and circle and everything was great. Um, But I did want to keep supporting the organization. So I was basically a work study student in the office. I helped do their first website and things like that, you know, Um, you know, did the phones. So teen people called Bagley looking for 
someone to interview and um, I put them through to the executive director and they were like, oh, well, Joe's here. Why don't you talk to him? And so they, so I spoke with them about a little bit and then they're like, yeah, that could work out. And so they contacted my boyfriend at the time separately and then like did the interview and we sent in a picture and stuff. So mm-hmm. it was just like happenstance that they happened to call while I was there and the executive director was probably like too busy to think. So just sent it on <laughs> like, here's a youth. I noticed, and you know, what you've described about your, your personality, um, mm-hmm. it's reflected in the article because you gave mm-hmm. him an ultimatum. Uh, well, he, wasn't, he wasn't out. We'll talk about that. Okay. <laughs> so the article says, come out or break up. And, you yeah. know, maybe that's the way the journalist paraphrased that. Right? Sure is. But yeah. I never, I never said that as far as I remember. And I remember thinking at the time when the article came out, like, I never said that. However... Um, he might have thought that I did say that. Like he could have actually said that because we were interviewed separately. So he could have actually could have actually said that to the reporter. Um, right. And so so he heard that regardless of whether I said that actual phrase. Um, and I don't quite think I felt exactly that way, but pretty close. Right. So mm. for me, um, at that time in my life, I was filled with vim and vigor about gay rights and just part of that gay people needed to come out and and live their lives openly for other people that were like struggling to feel comfortable but also for themselves to live fully and uh and so certainly he knew that so that quote i don't think i actually ever said that to him but it's absolutely what he heard if that makes sense. Interesting. And that that does make sense because he's actually, when you read the article, which is very short, he's quoted more than you are. Yep. And so I, I almost felt like he was sort of like the primary source, yeah. um, which, you know, it's interesting that I'm talking to you and not to him, <laughs> but, right. um, um, but you were the one I could find. Right. <laughs> so, um, do you still feel that way that the gay people should come out, you know, that they have an obligation to come out? I mean, I think nowadays, I think it's more of an obligation for yourself, right? I think that, um, you know, you know, as a gay person, you are going to face bullshit with your family, friends, et cetera. It's just going to happen. But if you want, if you want to live your life fully, you have to be open about your sexuality it just needs to be integrated into your your daily life where you're you're almost never coming out again because there's no hesitance in referring to your boyfriend, right? Um, I really want gay people to get to that place, but it really does begin, unfortunately, with like a declaration to someone, uh, you know, because uh, we are, you know, a minority. We're always going to be. It's just the way it is. Uh, it's the genetics and development, if you will. Uh, but uh, yeah, I absolutely think that that's true. Now, is it also important for gay people to be out to sort of create an ecosystem of support for each other and in a world where gay people are respected? Yes, but I'm more interested in gay people coming out for themselves than than I am for everybody else. The, the one issue I have is a lot of... Um, we were just talking about this the other day, my boyfriend and I, um, Ricky Martin is going to be a judge on, I think, RuPaul's Drag Race Canada. 
And I immediately like rolled my eyes because Ricky Martin became extremely wealthy and popular um, while I was coming out. Right. Like, so while I was like a teenager being called faggot, he's making millions of dollars singing about women. Then he comes out later in his life and he's praised for that. Right. Like I'm the one that did the hard work back then to help other gay people. And like, yes, a prominent person who is gay came out, but um, only after he made his millions. I think many gay men of my generation who were out probably harbor some of that inside of us. Even Ellen annoys me sometimes. Really? But she's done so much. And she did take a big risk, actually, because she was not certain to have any kind of career after she came out. Um, Ricky Martin, I have less respect for because he waited a long time. These people come out like after the fact, after they've made their millions and it just, God, I mean, I get it. Like at a personal level, I get it, right? Like they were facing the same pressures that I did. They made choices to be safe, to be secure, to have financial security, to allow them to be out later on in their life. So I completely get it. But I don't know if that's a hero story. I'm, I guess in the end, I am happy for both Ricky Martin and Lance Bass from NSYNC for getting to that place because I know both of them have made significant financial and time contributions to the gay community. But, um, you know, where's my award? Where's my, you know, it just, it, it, I know it's stupid, but man, like it wasn't easy. I mean, I was lucky to grow up in a place in the time that I did. I'm the first generation, you know, I'm a very particular generation of gay man that really first had the ability to be out. And, and what I see now, I mentioned, you know, I'm 41, my boyfriend's 25, this age difference, like he doesn't quite get like where I'm coming from there and vice versa, because it's just like a lived experience, right? Mm. Um, it's just interesting to see his trajectory versus my own and all of that. If I think about the teen people experience, it was really fun. Um, you know, being 21 at the time, I was like a little bit worried, like, am I really a teen? But with the with my perspective now, I'm like, yeah, it's fine to be in that. <laughs> it was also nice at that time, I would say, too, to have a national magazine with very wide readership do an article like this. Uh, that felt really cool. And, it, you know, I mentioned to my mom the other day that I was doing this interview and she doesn't even remember this, even though the picture was taken in, in our backyard at home. Um, you know, she's 79, so that's part of it. Uh, but, but I think even, even at that time, having been out for years, I think she just wasn't sort of ready for that level of outness. Um, I don't think that she had quite gained the comfortability that she has now with, with having a gay son. In the article, it mentions that you had bought your boyfriend a bouquet of irises. And I was wondering, do you remember choosing those flowers for him? And was there something about the irises that appealed to you? Um, I think part of it, I remember choosing those. That became like our flower, right? And so that was his gift um, at anniversaries and such. They were not the usual flower. And I wanted him to have something where he felt like it was curated, that I actually gave some thought to it, uh, rather than just getting roses, for example. Um, So roses are a great symbol, but I guess my thought was, these are beautiful, they're interesting, 
they're perhaps more interesting than roses in their shape and the way they look. And, and I'm willing to give that thought into this for you. Even without you mentioning it, I remembered what flowers I would get him. I, I hope he still remembers that, you know, and remembers that we did have really great moments of love between us. Like uh, it was a great relationship in so many ways. Um, it really is a, a huge, huge regret for me that we're not friends anymore. And, and we had been on a trajectory where that was going to be our future to be, you know, good lifelong friends. I'm so sorry. That's yeah, hard. it is. It's, it's been a sore spot for years now and I, I can't quite resolve it in my own mind. I'm, I don't have closure with this. Even, even though we don't have a relationship now, I largely look at that as like a really important part of my life, a growing experience, a good part of my life. Um, and, and one that um, has had some good lessons for me throughout my life now and in, in, in how I, um, in how I, who I want to be. Joe does indeed have a very high rating on ratemyprofessors.com. One student says, if there was a medal for the most caring, passionate, and smart professor, he would get it. Joe has carried a lot of regret at how his relationship with his then-partner evolved from a romance to friendship to estrangement. Nonetheless, he was part of a story which not only featured young, out couples, but offered advice to those wrestling with when and how to come out. Remember, this was 1999. As Joe told me, he feels it's important for LGBTQ2 people to come out, if only to themselves at first. Perhaps in sharing his story, and through his work with Bagley, he did help other young folks through that process. I hope for him there is a silver lining. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teen People. You can find more episodes on a podcast app near you. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper. Soper.